Okay, I'd just like to say, first of all, thanks uh, to President Higgins and his staff for inviting me along here today with Ida and Guy to talk about one of my passions, which is the Spanish influenza pandemic. And today I'm going to focus on gender and um, the roles of females in the pandemic. So um, the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918, it appeared to be an indiscriminate killer. It attacked and killed the very young, the very old, young adults and rich and poor alike. It's well documented that a global peculiarity of the Spanish flu pandemic is that it targeted young adults in particular. In Ireland, the Registrar General noted in 1918 that 55.5 of all influenza deaths were of people aged between 15 and 45. And in 1919, more than 58% of the total influenza, influenza mortality was between the ages of 20 and 65. And this graph is another representation of the graph that um, Ida showed you earlier. And as you can see, that during 1918, it was those aged 25 to 35 who suffered the highest mortality of any age group in the country. But was gender as well as age a factor in one's susceptibility to the disease? Well, the role of women during the pandemic, as in many other areas, has been overlooked. But women did play an important part in combating influenza. They were the main caregivers within the family, looking after family members who contracted the disease. They also worked as professional nurses, and they stepped up to the mark by working in munitions and other factories during the war. Also, as the title suggests, pregnant women were deemed to be a particular risk from the disease, and susceptibility of these Irish women to influenza will be remembered and examined in this paper. That's a little bar chart there. The Registrar General for Ireland, Sir William Thompson, estimated that 10,512 males, and that is 4.79 per thousand of the male population, and 9,545 females, that is 4.34 per thousand of the female population, died from the flu in the 32 counties of Ireland during 1918 and 1919. Now, this indicates that more men than women died in the country. And this is in contrast to Great Britain, where in Scotland, England and Wales, more female deaths were recorded than male. Now, the Registrar-General for England and Wales calculated that there was approximately 100,000 female and 84,000 male deaths in these countries which is hardly surprising due to the number of males serving on the Western Front at the time. In Scotland, 48% of the male population and 52% of the female population died from the flu between July 1918 and April 1919. However, the Scottish Registrar-General emphasised that this was not an indication that the pandemic was more fatal to females than males, as these rates were calculated using estimated populations that were unreliable due, into the, due to the war, because again, a lot of Scottish men were at the Western Front. So though more male than female influenza deaths were recorded in the 32 counties, in the province of Ulster, the official figures recorded uh, slightly more female than male deaths. There were 3,772 male and 3,809 female fatalities in the nine counties in the two years of the pandemic. However, it should be noted that based on the 1911 census, there was a higher female than male population in the province of Ulster. And this would only have increased during the war, because again, a lot of people from um, Ulster uh, were serving on the Western Front, a lot of men. In reality, using the 1911 census population figures, 4.89 per thousand of the male population and 4.69 per thousand of the female population died from the flu in Ulster. And that indicates a higher death rate for males than females. 
However, as this table shows, there were slightly higher female than male influenza deaths in the counties of Armagh, Donegal, Derry and Belfast County Borough. And interestingly, there was a high female population working in the linen and textile industries in these counties. Within the young, age, uh, young adult age group, pregnant women were particularly vulnerable to attack from the flu. In Scotland, there were 266 pregnancy-related deaths associated with influenza. That is 2.9% of the total recorded female deaths from the disease. During 1918, in the United States, 27% of the 1,350 reported influenza cases among pregnant women died. And studies found that expectant women in the US had a 50% higher chance of developing mnemonic uh, complications than those not recorded as pregnant. Once complications had developed, such women were 50% more likely to die. Now, studies in the United States of the two subsequent influenza epidemics, and these were compared to non-epidemic seasons, showed that pregnant women were at particularly high risk from influenza towards the end of their pregnancy. In England, the Medical Officer of Health for Warrington, Dr. Joseph, confirmed the dangers that pregnant women faced. He reported that, quote, influenza was especially harmful to pregnant women and women in childbirth. And it was his belief that the pregnant woman was more liable to the disease than the average woman of the same age. And he was in no doubt that an attack of influenza occurring towards the end of a pregnancy was a very serious matter, both for the mother and for the child. In Ireland during 1918, 26 of the 509 pregnancy-related deaths were due to the flu and 15 to pneumonia. Now, pneumonia was the most common complication from this uh, influenza in this pandemic. And that equates to 8.1% equates to of the pregnancy-related deaths. In 1919, 53 of the 524 pregnancy-related deaths were due to influenza and 6 to pneumonia. And that equates to 11.3% of pregnancy-related deaths. Now, although these figures might not seem overly high, the Registrar-General reported in 1919 that, quote, the deaths from causes associated with pregnancy have increased since the year 1917, when they numbered 51, to 90 in 1918, and 106 in 1919. Um, the, de uh, the 106 deaths include those of 53 women who suffered from the flu. Now, according to the annual report of the Rotunda Maternity Hospital in Dublin for the year ending the 31st of October 1918, and we were only halfway through the second wave of the pandemic at that point, three of the 11 deaths that occurred in the external department were from pneumonia during the influenza pandemic. The Registrar-General's report does not provide specific figures for Ulster or indeed any province in Ireland with respect to pregnancy-related deaths. However, it seems to contract influenza while pregnant will considerably increase the chances of a pregnancy-related death that might not, not, might not otherwise have occurred. And this is evidenced by the deaths in Larne during November 1918 of Catherine Thompson, aged 21, and Ellen Connor, aged 23, who both died during childbirth due to complications from the flu. In many cases, not only the mother, but also the premature babies died but these infants were not counted in the influenza death toll. Such a case was that of Jane Rowan from Killy Gordon in County Donegal, who died on the 4th of December during childbirth due to influenza. Her baby Mary died on the 10th of December from debility due to premature birth. Similarly, in Churchill, in Laudacanny, Poor Law District, baby Callaghan died on the 14th of November, 1918. Her death was recorded as prematurely born and her mother, Bridget, died two days later from the flu. 
In the same district, baby Buchanan died as a result of premature birth on the 5th of December, and his mother, Marjorie, died four days later on the 9th of December from influenza and cardiac failure. Now, although not recorded as such, there is no doubt that these babies died as a result of influenza. Pregnancy was not the only area where females were more at risk from influenza. The traditional female occupation of nursing the sick could be hazardous, and traditional nursing care provided the best and only effective treatment for the disease. Nursing during the pandemic was an area where women were to the fore, and consequently more vulnerable to infection, as they acted not only as professional nurses in the military and in local infirmaries, but they were also the chief providers of nursing in the home for members of their families. And in my opinion, they were the true heroines of the pandemic. Nursing was an arduous and harrowing job, and the highly contagious nature of the disease, as well as demands it placed on nurses, resulted in many of them contracting influenza themselves. Dr. D.W. McNamara, a newly qualified doctor working in the Matter Hospital in Dublin during the pandemic, recollected that the hospital was very busy, and that many of the nurses were, not, were off not only with influenza, but also pneumonia. Similarly in Ulster, many nurses were absent from workhouse infirmaries due to the flu. During the first wave, eight nurses in the Belfast Union Infirmary contracted the disease. And one probationary nurse, Catherine Fenton, aged 21, died on the 26th of June 1918 from the complication pneumonia. She'd only been working as a probationary nurse for six weeks before her unfortunate demise. During the second wave, the high numbers of influenza-related absences in the infirmary prompted the visiting medical officer, Dr Gardner Robb, to recommend an increase in the nurses' bovril rations by one quarter of an ounce per day to boost their diet and to help them cope with their increased workload. Now, this action may not seem as ridiculous as it sounds, but because bovril and oxo were considered a very important form of nourishment during the pandemic. They were popular beef teas of the day, and they were thought to strengthen the body against the onslaught of disease. Despite the increase in bovril rations, between the 5th of November and the 3rd of December 1918, four nurses, Catherine Ducey, Mary Griffin, Josephine Nayland and Rosanna Ellison, all died in their 20s. They died from pneumonia following on from influenza. During November 1918, the London Dairy Guardians also ordered that nurses' allowances in lieu of rations be temporarily increased by five shillings a week, so they might have a liberal diet during the pandemic. Nevertheless, many nurses contracted the flu, and two of them, Margaret McDermott, aged 23, and Rachel Crilly, aged 37, died during November. In the same month, two of the eight nurses in the Lurgan Infirmary, Louisa Kern, aged 24, and probationer nurse Kathleen McStravick, aged 26, died after contracting the flu. Of course, not all the nurses contracted influenza, nor did all those infected die, but there was still a high morbidity due to the disease. There was also a scarcity of professional nurses due to the war, as many of them volunteered to join either the Army or Naval Medical Corps. Nurses such as Elizabeth Harvey Watson of Dromore, County Down, who died from influenza in France on the 5th of November. The month prior to her death, she spent working in a ward of soldiers suffering from influenza and pneumonia. Rachel Ferguson from Moneymore, County Derry, also succumbed to influenza in Italy. On the 26th of June 1918, she was admitted to the hospital suffering from bronchopneumonia due to influenza, and she died later that day. 
A more fortunate nurse was Lady Hermione Blackwood, who volunteered as a VAD nurse during the war. And in a series of letters to her mother, the Marchioness of Dufferin and Ava, she recorded how she and her comrades nursed soldiers with influenza in France. Her efforts, uh, along with that of her comrades, were appreciated by the French authorities as she was awarded the French Medal of Honour for epidemics for her work nursing those with the disease. Due to so many nurses serving on the Western Front, poor law infirmary struggled to acquire suitably qualified staff. And this was further exacerbated when existing nurses contracted the flu themselves. Now, the poor law infirmaries were the main uh, source of medical care for the poor and not the not-so-poor in Ireland. So not being able to get nurses was a disaster for them. Infirmaries in Belfast, Derry, Ballycastle and Dungannon, to name but a few, had difficulties finding qualified replacement nurses during the first and second waves in 1918. The contagious and virulent nature of the flu meant nurses risked their lives, and this was evidenced as the death toll of those working in Belfast, Derry and Lurgan Union infirmaries. Nevertheless, despite the risk of infection, many selfless women were keen to volunteer to nurse the sick. The medical officer for Cookstown Union praised the action of the St John's Ambulance Association nurses under the command of Nurse Milligan of the District Nursing Society. The work of these ladies shouldn't be underestimated. They took charge of different sections of the districts, they visited the sick and nursed them, and they distributed food and nourishment to those unable to provide it for themselves due to illness. And that was very important because um, whole families, as we've already said, could be down with the flu, and there would be nobody there to feed them and so, or, the, or to make the food, so they needed food to help them combat the flu. Um, the medical officer stated that had it not been for this organisation, the death rate in Cookstown would have been appalling, and he expressed his appreciation of the devotion and self-sacrifice shown by these ladies. Many of them contracted influenza in the discharge of, quote, their self-appointed duties. In Tumfanahy Union in County Donegal, a local lady, Mrs Short, volunteered her services free of charge for 10 weeks in the Fever Hospital. The Dunfanaghy Guardians appreciated Mrs Short's, quote, most unselfish action and of the nobility of mind which prompted her to undertake so arduous and dangerous duties on behalf of the sick and the suffering poor. An influenza outbreak in the Friends School in Lisburn during the autumn of 1918 resulted in the deaths of three pupils, Helen Clark, Anna McGowan and Sadie Walsh on the 31st of October, the 3rd of November and the 8th of November respectively. The housekeeper, Miss Emma McCulloch, aged 35, and the headmaster's daughter, Frances Ridges, aged 21, a student from Queen's University, nursed the students suffering from the flu. Unfortunately, both these ladies lost their lives to the disease on the 10th and the 15th of November, respectively. Now, these volunteer nurses were but a few among many women who acted from civic duty, and their selfless actions no doubt helped to reduce the fatalities among the sick poor throughout Ireland. Even though, in the, like in the case of Emma McCulloch and Frances Ridges, they sacrificed their own lives in order to do so. Although these volunteers, unlike Lady Hermione Blackwood, did not receive any medals, it was evident that their duties were just as heroic and very much appreciated by the authorities during this medical crisis. Nursing of the sick at home was also a common occurrence, and those who could afford it employed private nurses. However, this would not have been an option for working-class Irish families, where the nursing of the sick at home would have been left to female family members. 
and it has been argued that nursing at home was the key to the survival of influenza patients. But the women who nursed the sick were in a dangerous situation as they were susceptible to infection. Dr Joseph, the Medical Officer of Health for Warrington and Lancashire, found a higher percentage of influenza cases in Warrington among those working at home than those working away from home, due mainly to the housewife being in continuous contact with severe influenza cases for many days. He found that one in five of those women nursing the sick at home contracted the disease themselves. The Ulster newspapers reported many tragic deaths of women nursing family members such as Mrs Edward Clark from Newry, who died from influenza contracted while nursing her large family of sons and daughters. And in Bestbrook, Mrs Orgy McKee contracted and later died from the disease after nursing her husband and two children through it. And it's uh, notable that the ladies don't get their own name. They're Mr Edward or Mrs Orgy, so there's no Marys or Jones in it. So that's notable in itself. Unfortunately, these incidents were not exceptional during the pandemic, as figures show that deaths among ladies described as housewives or housekeepers was high. And as Ida has already uh, explained in great detail, this could mean a disaster for a family in the subsequent years. Ulster was in a unique position in Ireland, as it was the industrial centre of the country. And because of this, the northwest of Ulster, sorry, the northeast of Ulster bore closer comparison to the more industrial regions in Britain than it did to other parts of Ireland. Female influenza deaths outnumbered males in the county of Armagh, Donegal, Londonderry, and Belfast County Borough. And the death of 982 females and 848 males from influenza in Belfast during the pandemic was attributed at the time to the extensive employment of females in factories and workshops in the town. Similarly, in London, there was a high mortality rate of 57% among young women. The spread of the flu in this particular age group was attributed to their widespread employment in factories and other large establishments during the war. Now, during the war years, new employment opportunities opened up to women in the United Kingdom and in Ireland in munitions factories. And in Belfast, from 1914 to the end of the war, James Mackey and Sons Limited employed women to aid in the munitions contracts. And during the war, the workforce doubled from their pre-war numbers of 650. In June 1918, influenza at Mackey's forced the closure of a department which was mostly staffed by women. And it was this notice placed in the Belfast newspapers by Mackey's requesting their lady workers to return to work on Monday the 17th of June that was the first mention of the flu, not only in Belfast, but also in Ireland. Although there were no fatalities or loss of revenue to the factory because of the flu, the fact that a department was forced to close indicates just how infectious the disease was during the first wave. And it already has been mentioned the first wave was the mildest wave, but still a lot of people got the flu and very many died. Although munitions factories offered new employment opportunities to Belfast females, women already played a major part in the Ulster linen industry. In towns such as Belfast, Lurgan, Lisburn and Portadown, women were employed in factory work in the linen trade. Women textile workers worked out of economic necessity, with many continuing to work in the factory or mill after marriage, even working up to the eve of childbirth, returning to work after a short absence. In 1892, this practice was linked to Belfast high infant mortality rate, because returning to work so soon after the birth of a baby ruled out breastfeeding, leaving infants vulnerable to disease. 
and it may have been this practice that contributed to the high mortality rate of both male and female children during under five during the pandemic in both Ulster and Belfast. And Ida has already spoken a great deal about infant mortality and diarrhoea, so the working conditions and mothers having to go back so soon could not have been a good thing. The production of linen was a dominant industry in Lurgan, with large female with a large female workforce. Many disruptions to the Lurgan textile trade were reported during the first and second waves in 1918. In the first wave, hundreds of workers from Lurgan's 22 factories were reported as being absent with influenza during July 1918. And during November 1918, the Lurgan Mail reported that all factories and warehouses in the town were, quote, more or less depleted of their workers. Flu was also rife in Derry, and factory workers were particularly affected. In early July, the Irish News reported the temporary closure of a Londonderry shirt and collar factory, as over 350 of its employees had contracted the flu. And during the second wave, many factory workers in Derry were reported to be ill with the disease. Now, during the first wave, Sir James Niven, who was the medical officer of health for Manchester, interviewed the female employees at a textile factory in Manchester who had contracted the disease. Niven believed that the rapid spread of influenza through the factory was due to the use of common hand towels and wash basins. Women worked in close proximity to infected people, and handling the same articles also played a part in its circulation. Dr Arnold, who surveyed factories in Leicester, concurred with Niven. He highlighted the use of roller towels, sharing enamel drinking cups, washing teacups together with the passing of goods in various stages of manufacture from one worker to another as a possible means of spreading the disease. Now in, Ulster, in Ulster, even without the flu, the working conditions in the linen industry were already notoriously unhealthy for the women who undertook spinning and handloom weaving in factories. Spinning rooms were hot and damp in order to prevent the flax uh, threads from breaking making them an ideal breeding ground for TB, while flax fibres covered spinners with a permanent layer of dust and caused serious lung damage. A tuberculosis was a major concern, and in Belfast, 53% of the female textile workers who died in 1891 died from pulmonary tuberculosis. In 1920, Dr Arnold from Leicester, in his report for the Ministry of Health on the town's factories, stated... The possibility of droplet infection through the air varies considerably in the various processes. Of those I saw, machining in the shoe factory seemed to offer the greatest opportunity. Workers sit on each side of a long bench and face one another. The distance across the bench is about five feet and the lateral distance between the workers is about three feet. Now, in Ulster, the linen sheds didn't have benches, but they were a particularly crowded working environment and a linen shed of 500 looms would accommodate approximately 250 to 300 workers. The close, the close proximity of female workers to one another in enclosed factory environments, such as those in the spinning and weaving sheds, was instrumental in spreading influenza within a factory workshop. Another common custom carried out in both the cotton factories in England and the linen weaving factories in Ireland was the practice of kissing the shuttle. And here is a picture demonstrating that practice. And this is where the thread was pulled through the eye of a shuttle by sucking on it. Shuttles were kissed hundreds of times a day by a succession of weavers. Blackburn cotton weavers believed that this practice was largely responsible for the spread of the flu in that town. And as far back as 1902, the custom was thought to be instrumental in the spread of tuberculosis and was considered dangerous not only for the spread of infection, but also because the weaver could suck up whatever dirt or dust was in the eye of the shuttle. 
even though the Shuttle Kissing Committee, which was set up to look at the practice, reported in October 1919 uh, that the practice should be abolished in the cotton weaving industry. And despite the continued dangers of kissing the shuttle and its association with the spread of TB, it was not officially abandoned in Belfast Linen Mills until 1958. Apart from the core processes of spinning and waving of linen, there were also certain related low-paid industries, in particular dressmaking, shirt-making and making up. The process of making up is where the manufacturers provide the materials to the women to make up shirts in their own home. The shirt-making industry was of great importance both in Derry and Donegal, and it was dominated by women. In 1901, shirt-makers and seamstresses accounted for 40% of females employed in Donegal and 35% in Derry. Shirt-making involved a combination of both factory and homework, with homework playing a major role. Some factories in Derry employed two to three times more outside workers than inside workers. In Donegal, the greatest concentration of shirt makers was along the Inishowan Peninsula, where one quarter of those detailed in the census lived. And it's notable that the Inishowan Poor Law Union in County Donegal had the highest death rate per thousand of population in 1918 in the province of Ulster. And this has always been a puzzle because it was such a rural area, so why was the death rate so high? Centred around Lurgan and Portadown was the making up of handkerchiefs and it was a, it was important uh, textile trade and again combining both factory and homework. As you can see there that little triangle is the linen triangle where the concentration of most of the linen work was in the province. So making up trades, uh, sorry Lurgan was an important industrial town in Lurgan providing employment for thousands of women in districts of Lurgan, Portadown, Banbridge and Dromore. Making up factories were all outsourced um, from uh, factories in areas such as Lurgan, Dromore and Portadown, and most of the factory labour force and home workers were predominantly female. Female members of Lurgan households often worked at home, folding, packing, stitching and sewing linen fabrics, and homeworking became an essential feature of the local linen industry. A rough estimate of the influenza mortality figures in Lurgan town during 1918 and 19 showed that just over 40% of the influenza deaths in the town were of males and females who worked in the linen industry or wives and children of the same, and around 69% of these deaths were of females. In Portadown, 24% of the influenza deaths were of uh, males and females who worked in the linen industry and their family members, and of these, again, 71% were female. The influenza virus can survive for some time in the environment, up to about 24 hours on soft, porous materials such as cloth. In Lurgan, Portadown, Derry and Donegal, women and children collected materials from industrial and infected areas, brought them back to rural communities and worked in them for long hours in close proximity to one another. During the third wave, influenza spread to the country districts just outside Lurgan and many were severely affected by the disease. It has been suggested that in 1911, 22% of the rural Lurgan population were involved in some way in the linen and textile trades. In Warrenstown, a town just outside Lurgan, 43% of the flu deaths were of men and women who worked in the linen industry and members of their families, and again, 67% of those were female. So could the practice of homeworking be instrumental in the spread of influenza from industrial town centres to the more rural areas like Inishowen and County Donegal, and thus have caused the high death rates in the area? I believe that it was a significant factor in its spread. 
The high proportion of women working in industrial processes in Belfast, Derry, Lurgan, Portadown and Lisburn coincides with the marginally higher influenza mortality among females than that of males in the 20 to 25 age group in counties Armagh, Derry and Belfast. And I propose that the high employment of women in an already unhealthy environment, working in close proximity to one another and sharing utensils, towels and even shuttles could have been a contributory factor to the high mortality of women in Ulster, especially in the more industrial towns such as Belfast and Lurgan. So to conclude, there were many factors that could have made females more susceptible to infection. Pregnant women were in particular danger, especially during the latter part of their pregnancy. Many courageous and selfless women acted as both professional and voluntary nurses, putting themselves in danger on a daily basis to care for those sick with the flu. Meanwhile, on the domestic front, many women looked after other sick mem family members and neighbours, often at the sacrifice of their own lives. Also in certain Ulster towns, there were high female employment in the linen and textile trades, where women were exposed to the risks of contracting flu due to the already unhealthy and crowded factory conditions. Therefore, given all of these factors, I would suggest that the real surprise is that the female mortality in Ulster was not even higher. Thank you very much for listening.